Welcome to Confronting Christian Nationalism, a podcast that explores the rise of Christian nationalism in America and what churches and individuals can do to confront it. I'm your host, Daniel Dietrich. Do you support the United States becoming a Christian nationalist country? Yeah, I do. In November, we're going to take our state back. My God will make it so. The church is supposed to direct the government. And I'm tired of this separation of church and state junk. Obey the laws of the government because God is obeying the government. Thank you for allowing the United States of America to be reborn. Thank you for allowing us to get rid of the communists, the globalists, and the traitors within our government. We love you and we thank you. In Christ's holy name we pray. Over the last three episodes, we've learned a lot about what Christian nationalism is and the reasons many find it attractive. This episode, we respond to the question we get asked the most, and maybe you've been asking it yourself. So what do we do? How can churches and individuals talk about Christian nationalism and offer people an off-ramp from this destructive ideology? How can we help de-radicalize our friends, family members, or neighbors? There's not a cookie-cutter, one-size-fits-all answer, but we think the solution starts with this. Empathy and engagement. To expand on this idea, here's Doug Paget from a Vote Common Good event in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, recorded in October of 2022 on the Confronting Christian Nationalism Tour. You can watch the full video version over at our YouTube channel, and you can also find a complete Confronting Christian Nationalism curriculum for individuals and churches over at votecommongood.com. Let's dive in. All right. So what can churches do? We're going to flash through these things. They're not, it's not overly complicated in my, in my view. Uh, what can churches do? Well, churches can break the no talk rules that exist around politics and religion. We can find some ways to talk about it as I suggested. I've been a pastor for a long while, as I mentioned, and sermons are not the best place to talk about most important things uh, that are tough to talk about. And we have no talk rules in our churches about politics and, and stuff. Like this church seems a little different, seems a little more comfortable to talk about civic and but I'm sure there's been some people uncomfortable. There might be some emails sent about this. Maybe people even uncomfortable. In, like we can't talk about it in that place. We could over in this place. We've got to figure out as churches how we do it. But if you know anything about family therapy and family systems therapy, you know that a family systems therapist will say, hey, if you got no talk rules in your family, you got to figure out how to break them. But the way you break your no talk rules isn't to just start talking about it, right? Because you don't know how to talk about it yet. So you have to develop new skills to know how to talk about it because all your no-talk rules have gotten you into a place where you have conflictual relationships every time you try to talk about it and things just get worse. So the first way to break no-talk rules is to say, we're going to talk about it, but not yet. We're going to develop the skills to be able to talk about it so that then when we talk about it, we can end up in some places that are different than just our normal routine. So there's lots of curriculum. We have curriculum. Christians Against Christian Nationalism has curriculum. There's a bunch of books that have curriculum. There's a bunch of stuff that can be helpful. I'm going to flash some up here on the screen in a minute for you to see those. So this, um, in, in other words, you know, as I think my little three-year-old grandson, a six-year-old grandson would understand, sometimes you just got to talk about Bruno. So uh, we can't just keep going around saying you can't talk about Bruno around here. If you don't know that reference, uh, there's a great movie still in your future for you, to, for, for you to watch at some point. Kristen Dumay has a great book on this topic. If you want to get into talking about this, I'd suggest to her this book, Jesus and John Wayne, where she talks about the role of masculine influence in the church and how it plays out. And as uh, uh, one of our friends and one of our presenters in this stuff, Shane, says, Kristen's not suggesting that John Wayne is the Messiah they're suggesting they wish the Messiah was a lot more, a lot more like John Wayne. 
And there's an attitude of militaristic, strong, tough, win at all costs kind of thing. And that's a big part of Christian nationalism. So this book is a really great uh, little help for it. So where, where are we going next? It's, it's really hard to say because, well, it's always hard to say because you never, it's, it's, things, um, things happen that you don't expect. And, you know, it can just, it just we can veer off in, in many different directions. Uh, his, history will demonstrate that. You never really know what's, what's right around the corner. But what I'm seeing right now, a couple of different things. This, this rift is real, right? It's, it's real. Um, it, it's cutting through families. It's cutting through communities, through churches, uh, that people who thought they shared the same faith are now looking at each other across this chasm saying, who are you, right? And, and what, uh, how, how can you say these things? And and realizing maybe that a similar religious language has had, has papered over these really um, incredible differences uh, for a long time and that just can't be ignored. So what we see happening is, uh, I think Ed Setzer called it the evangelical reckoning, where we do see um, a number of evangelicals saying, no, this is not my faith. This is not, and now that I see it clearly, oh, we need to talk. This is not, this is not my Christianity. This is not my gospel. This is not my Jesus, right? And this is not my country. And so trying to, to, to change that, to, um, to stand out against it. Um, and we, we see a lot of people leaving churches. We see people, um, some, some pastors getting fired, uh, employees of Christian organizations either getting forced out or just walking away. Um, that is very real and it's happening. So the evangelical reckoning is happening on an individual level. What I also see is it's not happening much at all on an institutional level. Hmm. And so when you have people, individuals leave organizations, leave churches, when you have Beth Moore leave the SBC, um, with, and this is being repeated on the local level all over the country right now, um, just you know, enough is enough or you get fired. Um, who remains, right? The people who remain are often more radicalized. The voices of dissent are removed and they can go on with what they're doing. And so, so I see both of those dynamics at play right now. A number of people who had kept quiet for a very long time, who had been complicit in many ways in allowing things to get to where we are now, are saying enough is enough. And there are all kinds of individual acts of courage. Um, and at the same time, I see that institutions are, are really persisting in um, in these spaces and in some ways, uh, you know, radicalizing. And so I'm not really optimistic at this point. Um, the one other thing I think that has changed significantly is, uh, you know, Donald Trump is no longer in the White House. And that I think is hugely important because the real attraction there was power. Uh, right, power to protect Christianity, power to protect Christian America, and um, when as, as soon as Donald Trump is no longer in the Oval Office, uh, he does not wield that kind of power anymore. Right, he's not the leader of the free world. Um, he doesn't even have a Twitter account 
at this point. <laughs> and I think that makes a real difference. It really does. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't mean that the, you know, what what's around the corner next, but I think the longer that he's in this diminished space, um, perhaps the better. And I, I know people are competing to kind of get out in front of this, you know, next wave and, uh, you know, Ted Cruz tried at CPAC and um, that didn't go over all that well. And others are trying to position themselves. Um, but I, I, I don't really see that charismatic leader stepping out, which is what we had for the last four years. And I think that's um, just worth acknowledging. And, and it's, it's hard to know what's next on that front. It also suggests that churches make it about, that they make it about faith, that civic engagement can be a way that people understand their faith. Not that you're going to only practice it in the civic spaces, but it's also one of the places. Like it's one of the things you also do. So let's get really good at it, but talk about it not just as a political agenda, but as a discipleship project and to talk about it as, as an issue of faith. And then let's be honest as churches about the places where Christianity does have a preference in our society. We do give a lot of preference to Christianity. Christianity gets a default on a lot of things, right? So does religion in our society. We should notice those and name those and be willing to talk about them. And it's really healthy to say, are there ways that we've participate, that we continue to participate in this subtlety of Christian, um, of, of Christianity being the deferred starting point for things, the assumed place where people come from and how they understand the world and how we should. And what can individuals do? Engagement and empathy. That's what I'd suggest to you. I'm going to play a bit from Jonathan Wilson Hartgrove here, and I think you really love it. He writes two books, one called The Reconstructing the Gospel, Finding Freedom from Slaveholder Religion. You might know Jonathan. He works with uh, Reverend William Barber and the Poor People's Campaign and Moral Mondays thing. So if you recognize him, it might be from that. And then his book called The Revolution of Values, Reclaiming Public Faith for the Common Good. Uh, not one of our brand uh, things or anything, but Jonathan's a really good friend and travels with us and does, does speaking with us, and he's really great. And I think this will help you understand the empathy and engagement piece. Jonathan, I find your, your comments to be very prophetic and refreshing in this sense. Uh, almost every conversation that I've had with people about Christian nationalism and the, the pains that go with it, people ask basically, how do I change the individual person's mind? I know a person who thinks this way. What can I say to them? How could I deprogram them? How could I de-radicalize them? I hear you suggesting that the way we do this for an individual is to move in community or to move in a collective action of some kind, not just to go with one conversation one-on-one, but to try to remake the conditions in which these individual people are holding these beliefs. Is that, am I getting at what your, uh, what, what your advice is? Oh, yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. Because you can't, uh, you can't assume that the people who believe this are crazy in their context. Uh, but again, back to the empirical data that they were just laying out, there's far too many people to think that this is just, you know, some sort of aberration that needs to be treated in individuals. No, this is a culture that mm-hmm. is, feeding people lies, reinforcing those lies, and inviting people to uh, understand themselves as part of um, what I think people of faith, Christians, can only call uh, an idolatrous worship of the nation as um, the kind of ultimate end. And the, the alternative to that has to be building a better community to invite people into. And I think 
you know, while we need to be building culture in all kinds of ways everywhere, um, any strategic effort to address this has to especially focus on building community in uh, rural places, and in particular in places that have been media deserts, because that is where, to get into the weeds a little bit, the Council for National Policy that I mentioned uh, has had the executive leadership of all of those media companies that Sam mentioned, from American Family Radio to Breitbart News to Fox. They've all been on that council. They've all coordinated with each other for decades. And, um, and what they have done is they have strategically gone into places where there are not local newspapers anymore, where there's not local radio, and they have blanketed it with their message. So pe- so it's entirely possible, you know, if your pastor participates in the Family Research Council's pastor program and takes their free literature, and if, you know, you um, uh, are a member of the Republican Party and the NRA, which, by the way, have also coordinated very closely with this group, uh, and if you listen to uh, American Family Radio when you're driving the tractor out in the field, it's entirely possible that you never hear any other narrative in your life, right? There is no alternative in the place where you are. And so you would be crazy in that context not to believe this stuff. So I think anybody who knows that this is a lie has a moral obligation to try to enter these spaces and interrupt the uh, wraparound culture that has been created by this propaganda campaign. Let me say this. Um, I think what you're talking about on the first point in terms of really challenging churches that we may be part of or may be connected to in some way, uh, the challenge that I think is most important is the challenge to get involved, right? The uh, Too often what they were describing as ambassadors are uh, those Americans who participate in uh, Christian congregations um, who Uh, are not all that enthusiastic about the agenda of the religious right, but have basically decided that uh, it's most comfortable for them uh, if they don't uh, challenge it too directly and if they uh, more or less talk about Jesus in a way that Jesus uh, assures you some eternal salvation and some, you know, peaceful life for you and your family in this world. That, that, that's kind of the Jesus that has been preached. And I'm, I'm not just saying on the sort of uh, theologically conservative side of things. There's a lot of mainline white congregations that might be theologically liberal, but more or less still preach a Jesus that just lets you be more or less comfortable. Uh, and I think uh, it's time to reclaim the Jesus who um, disturbs the peace. You know, uh, you can't read the Gospels uh, too honestly without recognizing that while many of the poor and marginalized people uh, whom Jesus embraced and affirmed were very enthusiastic about his presence, but almost anybody who had any power in that society looked at the brother sideways and in the end tried to kill him. Uh, That's the response people had to Jesus because Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. Uh, The kingdom of God, uh, while not a partisan organization is certainly a political <laughs> entity and it uh, I, I would contend that it challenges any party within any political system of this world so jonathan talked about media deserts and how people would be crazy within their context not to believe these lies put out by the christian nationalism propaganda machine so how do we break into these media deserts with truth we asked samuel perry sociologist and co-author of taking america back for god where he thinks the Christian nationalism movement is headed, and what can be done about it. You can hear his full interview as part of our Confronting Christian Nationalism curriculum for individuals and churches over at votecommongood.com. Here's what he had to say. 
I mean, after after what we've seen over the past year, I go back and forth between uh, being really optimistic that we can turn some things around and, and then other times um, being being of the opinion that it's going to get worse before it gets better. Um, I think some things that we can do to try to make it better before it gets worse uh, is, is uh, I think, really challenge uh, these sources of misinformation. I think one of the one of the most toxic things out there is is are are these lie factories, uh, for lack of a better word, that that just feed conspiracy theory and lie uh, and falsehood to these populations that are kind of eating it up, and they're primed to to believe conspiracy theories, to feel like victims. Uh, they just lost an election uh, that their their leader, who they trust and put a lot of trust in, questioned the validity of that election, and so there's already a sensitivity to feeling taken advantage of and, and out of control and fearful about what the future holds. So I am thankful that Joe Biden doesn't seem to be the kind of guy who just wants to pick rhetorical fights and bully people on Twitter. Uh, I'm, I'm thankful that the, um, I'm thankful that, that Trump is no longer on Twitter because I, I feel like freedom of speech, even though I think a lot of people think about freedom of speech being a priority, freedom of speech doesn't give somebody a, 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 the privilege to shout fire in a crowded movie theater. Uh, and Trump was shouting fire in a crowded movie theater 10 times a day uh, on, on, on Twitter for fun. Uh, and, and he was a main conduit of misinformation. And so I, I think getting a hold of those sources of conspiracy theory and misinformation, shining a light on them and denouncing them. Um, I do think conservative Christian leaders have a role to play in standing up for what is true and what is right. Uh, and saying, look, we, we have taken this uh, and, and acknowledging like, hey, maybe maybe I shouldn't have bought into these lies. Maybe we should have reconsidered where we were going with this. But now let's make it right and let's start doing the right thing. I, I really do. I, I'm not ready to write off those populations. Uh, I think the extreme ambassadors like like Andrew um, was describing to some extent, that, that that population may be a little bit too radicalized for us to, to reach right now. But those accommodators, those accommodators are worth talking to, right? Like we can we can speak to those accommodators and say, look, this is um, this is too much. This is wrong. This is idolatry. And let's uh, let's 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 bring it back to, I think, what we can all agree on the values that we can uphold to, to defend democracy, uh, to be a good Christian witness, to defend the integrity of the church. Um, I, you know, I think that's 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 what I want to work for. We need to challenge these lie factories that feed conspiracy theories to a population that is primed to receive them. And conservative leaders need to step up and lead their followers away from these toxic ideas. We go now to an excerpt from that same curriculum with Doug Paget and co-host Stephanie Rose Spaulding. Stephanie is a pastor, professor, and author, and offers this helpful response to the question, so how do you talk to people you love who are Christian nationalists? How do you talk to people you love who are Christian nationalists in love and break through the hate and the division? I feel so separated by certain friends and family members. I mean, boy, if, if any question sort of gets right at the, right at the heart of it, what, where a lot of us are, right, knowing we're not going to solve for all of Christian nationalism, but is there something we can do? Do you have any thoughts on that, um, that, that very insightful anonymous question? <laughs> Um, I think it's like so many other polarizing questions or concepts, right? Um, whether we're talking about white supremacist ideology, privilege and oppression, um, I think we have to first find the space that is common ground, what we can agree on, 
and take note on a measure of where you are and where you are not willing to go in the conversation in the the most loving and open way that that you can do that. What I what I mean by that is um, there there are some conversations that I am I am not going to have with certain people because I know that they are not ready to receive it. And that comes from my perspective as an educator, right? I am not going to dive into graduate level material with folks who are just coming out of high school. Um, So there's some some scaffolding that has to be done in that. And also a, a, a commitment or an assessment of the level of commitment that you're willing to energize or put towards um, that conversation. Um, And then also it's a release. I think the third piece of that is a release in knowing that um, as much of the conversation you can have, there is no way that you are going to shift or change anybody else's mind. That is an internal individualized um, place and decision that we all get to make for ourselves, right? So when I am having these conversations, I don't come at it from I'm trying to persuade you and that I need to see the evidence of that persuasion. It is simply, this is what I know, this is what I know to be true, and this is what I'm learning. If you choose to receive it, almost very biblically, for those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Some people are not ready to listen or be moved away from Christian nationalism. The hardcore ambassadors, as Samuel Perry calls them, might not be open to a conversation about this. But for the accommodators, for those who have ears to hear, we can establish some common ground and in a loving way present what we know and what we have experienced while not expecting immediate 180-degree change of heart. It might be outside of our control to change people, but people can and do change. Bradley Onishi is the host of Straight White American Jesus and the author of Preparing for War, The Extremist History of White Christian Nationalism. You can hear our full interview with him on the Vote Common Good podcast, but here's a segment talking about what led him out of the movement and how he recommends talking to people who are still caught up in Christian nationalism. What I realized later in my life is that there were true believers in where I came from, but they were true believers in the marriage of the gospel and the American flag. Mm-hmm. And their interest was in an American identity and a, and a Christian Americanism that really sees the flag and the cross as, as spouses. And so I think what partially led me out was actually taking the Sermon on the Mount seriously and taking some of the other things seriously and saying, I don't understand how the kingdom of God can be about America. It doesn't, it, it just doesn't, it never, it does not click for me. And it, the more I ask questions, the more you all think I'm a troublemaker. I'm just trying to understand why we're always talking about the United States. Mm-hmm. So the people from my hometown, like I went home home this weekend and I saw it firsthand, you know, my friends and and cohorts are now in their 40s and their interest is christianity draped in the flag not the world draped in the cross and Mm -hmm. so um that to me is why i ended up out of the movement and and deconstructing in the way i did and it's also why i think where i came from continues to be a hotbed for christian i mean this is this you know you talked about the soil and who it's produced the soil of orange county produced 
Barry Goldwater is a Republican candidate for president. It's where we, I mean, I was born two miles from Richard Nixon was born. It was Ronald Reagan's spiritual home. The airport's named after John Wayne. So we're pretty good at this. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's tempting. It's tempting to get in there on Facebook or at a holiday dinner or uh, when you see your cousins at the barbecue and just say, how can you believe that? Uh, here is my evidence about vaccines or my evidence about voter fraud, my evidence about why QAnon doesn't make sense. And uh, rarely does that lead right to changed hearts and minds. Uh, I, I do think that we have to pay attention to affect and emotion. You know, people are like, how do I talk to my cousin in that situation? And I'd say, it's gonna be really tempting as they spout off things that you know are false to jump in and say, wrong, wrong, idiotic. Oh my Lord, that is the dumbest thing I've heard today. The better response is, all right, so you're telling me about this. What about that uh, makes you angry? What about that yeah. makes you frustrated like nice. why are you so resentful with that group of people and what what is fueling that grievance or that anxiety i'm raising kids you are too like what makes you scared for them and if you can get there then maybe you're two human beings talking and they don't see you as that crazy uh, liberal you know some something or godless heathen or, or whatever they've been told you are they just all of a sudden you're a human who's scared and worried and um and anxious and and trying to be hopeful for their kids and that can make a difference and in terms of story i think that we can tell a story we just often miss the opportunity that yeah you know martin luther king jr uh we just celebrated his 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 holiday and birthday and you know the the line that you hear so often is the arc of the universe bends towards justice and it's like history is is made and it's not nice. uh, it's, it's not a given it's not destiny so listen we have a chance in this country to be a more perfect union we have a chance to live up to our creed for the first time we have a chance to extend liberty and equality and independence to all people of all ethnicities and all religious traditions or non-religious traditions and we can walk together on a path that goes towards justice we mm -hmm. can link arms and say that's where we're headed and i'm not sure if we're going to get there but we're going to try like hell to do it and if you are somebody who believes in that if you're somebody who believes that our our creed is worth living up to and fighting for then walk with me and let's go mm -hmm. and yeah. we can have a story here but so often we're 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 really bad at telling it and we're really bad at realizing that emotion is and identity are just as big a part of it as anything else well in our last uh, 30 seconds or so uh trump's out of power he's losing influence in his own party is white Christian nationalism also on the way out? Do we have, can we forget this and move on with our lives or do we still need to be concerned? I've taken a pickleball. I don't even think about it anymore. No. Um, <laughs> oh, so me I too. Say, yeah. I would say um, there's a shrinking number of folks uh, who are part of these kinds of churches. It's a graying community. They're having a hard time holding on to young people. As they shrink, they get more vociferous, more aggressive. That's number one. Number two, uh, white Christian nationalism is a story that is also winning in other places. So Trump is one metric. Uh, Ron DeSantis is another, and uh, he's doing great. He got 70% of the vote and is basically more conservative. He's rightward of Trump on vaccines and on education and on immigration. Um, so uh, my take would be that if, if, if you do read the book and you do take a look at the history I'm into, this is not a movement that takes a setback in the 2022 midterms and says, well, we tried, might as well just get brunch and do something else now. <laughs> um, so I, I don't I, I don't think it's out of our lives. And 
I say that because um, I'm somebody who continues to be really worried about American democracy. As much as we'd love for Christian nationalism to just fade away, it won't go quietly into the night without people of faith and good conscience confronting it. And to confront it, we need more than just facts and sound bites. We need empathy and a willingness to find common ground. We also need to have the wisdom and restraint to know when and where to engage. The comment section in a stranger's Facebook post might not be the best place. Maybe over coffee with a friend or family member with whom you have a level of trust and mutual respect is a better way. In the next episode, we'll continue the conversation about how to talk to friends and family about Christian nationalism. So be sure to tune in for that. We'd also love to hear from you. How have conversations about Christian nationalism gone for you? What resources or approaches have been helpful? If you used to be a part of the Christian nationalism movement, who or what helped get you out? Drop us a note at info at votecommongood.com. This series is brought to you by Vote Common Good. Whether it's cycling along the entire U.S.-Mexico border to call for immigration reform, traveling the country in a bright orange tour bus holding get-out-the-vote rallies, or training candidates to connect with evangelical and Catholic voters, Vote Common Good is mobilizing people of faith to make the common good their voting criteria. If you've been enjoying this series, please share it with a friend, subscribe, leave us a review, and see how you can get involved over at VoteCommonGood.com. We'd love to have you on the team. See you next time on Confronting Christian Nationalism.